You're listening to NapaBroadcasting.com, Napa Valley Radio for the way we live now. Thanks for joining us here at NapaBroadcasting.com. Many of you know David Kearns is a columnist and feature writer for the Napa Register. But like many of those who've come to Napa with hidden talents and fascinating pasts, David was also a doctor, a senior hospital executive, and a Stanford medical professor. He was born and raised in Chicago, and he's just written a new novel set against the world he grew up in in Chicago. It's entitled Fortnight on Maxwell Street, and it is my pleasure to welcome David Kearns to the program. David, thanks so much for being here. Hi, Jeff. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much for uh, joining us. First of all, before we talk about the novel itself and the backdrop for it, I want to talk a little bit about you and your history. I mean, what I said in the introduction is it's always so true here in Napa, and I know that you've talked to so many people here and interviewed so many people here and know that it's also true that people come here with fascinating histories, fascinating backgrounds. Well, um, I'm, I don't know how fascinating it is, uh, but I, uh, not surprisingly, I grew up in Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, and, and much of this novel is based on a lot of my personal experience. Um, but I grew up in Chicago and spent my first 25 years there. Uh, I went to undergraduate the University of Illinois, a medical school at Northwestern, which is actually right in almost right. downtown Chicago. And then I took off. Um, I did my training in various places, uh, but principally in Colorado and California. Uh, I had a brief sojourn in New England uh, doing pediatrics, uh, and then wound up in in California pretty much permanently uh, after 1980. So it's been about a third of a century. And did you always know you wanted to be a doctor? Was that something you, you sort of had this childhood ambition to do? Um, I don't, I don't know about early childhood, but by the time I was headed for college, that, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, it was not an uncommon path for a good Jewish boy. Um, uh, and, uh, but there were also role models, uh, doctors that I had met in my childhood that I admired. Um, so I, I got into pre-med at the University of Illinois and off I went. Mm Mm-hmm. And once you became a doctor, what did you want to specialize in? What did you uh, want to focus on? I was a pediatrician. You were a pediatrician. Um, and uh, largely because I liked pediatricians, which people think that uh, that choice is often because, oh, I just love children, and I like children, you know. Uh, but I particularly liked the culture of pediatrics, and I, and I liked the people that I met in, in the culture of pediatrics. And the patients complain less, but I guess their parents complain for well, them. They, that com- was they complain in a different way, a different not way. necessarily yeah. verbally. <laughs> <laughs> and after you got out of medical school, where did you practice initially? Well, you know, initially, after, well, actually, after my training, after my pediatric training, uh, in those days, everybody went into the Army or went into right. the military. So I had a period of time in, in the U.S. Army um, military medicine. And when I got out of that, then I, I headed for a private practice in New England, uh, lived in Connecticut uh, for almost five years, uh, and then headed west. And tell us about your time in Chicago. You know, medical school is medical school. You mostly have your face in a book. Uh, but uh, there were times when we managed to get out, and I knew the, I knew the city. Uh, Chicago... Um, I was always interested in music, 
and that continues in my life now as right. a writer about music. And I played in bands, uh, went to a lot of live music. Chicago was wonderful in that sense. Um, and, uh, you know, grew up in that pretty vital multicultural environment because I didn't live in the suburbs. I lived in inner city Chicago, mm-hmm. went to school in inner city public schools. Uh, and and so it was really in that sort of crazy quilt, that melting pot. Um, and, uh, and that was pretty interesting and educational and sometimes rough. Mm-hmm. Tell us how you made the switch from, from being a doctor to becoming an executive, really, in, in hospitals. Well, I um, it was sort of, sort of a progressive process. I've, I was practicing, and then I was asked to run a department of pediatrics, which was sort of a combined clinical and administrative job. Mm-hmm. So I was seeing patients, but I was also in charge of making the department operate. And then in uh, the late 1990s, I was asked to take a position called chief medical officer. Uh, This was at Santa Clara Valley Medical Center uh, in San Jose. I was on the clinical faculty at Stanford. And that that really became an administrative job. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had responsibility for the entire salaried medical staff. Um, And I did that for about five years. Uh, and and then I retired from full-time. And did you like doing that? I liked aspects of it. Um, I thought, you know, the ability to shape uh, the, the medical care of a whole large teaching hospital was challenging, it was interesting. But then there, was, there were also the aggravations of just that you have when you're a boss. And uh, there were about... 300-some physicians on staff. They didn't all report directly to me. They reported to their department chairs. But there were manpower issues and putting out fires and all the the kind of um, less fun stuff. Uh, It was just all part of it. Well, during the course of your career, it really was the period that we saw medicine arguably change the most as a business. I mean, from, from sort of sole practitioners to the kind of corporate medicine that we have today. Yeah, I was a little bit shielded from that, or maybe a lot shielded from that, because I I was uh, working almost the entire time in public teaching hospitals. Uh, So we were not private practitioners. We were salaried teacher clinicians, um, and actually avoided a lot of the aggravation of, of being a small business person mm-hmm. in a private practice. Mm-hmm. And did you always sort of have it in the back of your mind that you wanted to write someday? Um, I, I actually did a lot of writing when I was a physician because these were academic teaching positions. We were involved in research. We were writing research articles for medical journals, occasionally writing book chapters. Right. I never wrote Different kind of writing. Different kind of writing, but you still had to be able to write a sentence. You still had to be able to put words together with clarity and, you know, and, and you know, some, some degree of palatability. So I actually did a lot of academic writing during my medical career. When did you decide you wanted to branch out and do more writing? Um, as, I, as I neared the end of the full-time career, 
I I started a first novel. You mentioned that this was my first novel. Mm -hmm. This is actually my second novel. My first novel is called Standard of Care. It was published in 2007. I began writing it in about 1998. I'm really slow. I mean, seriously. Well, you would do it other things. I'm seriously slow. This this book I started writing in 2000, working on in 2005. The the running joke on this book is that it's old enough to have a bar mitzvah. Um, and uh, so anyway, in the late 1990s, I had an idea for a novel, and I and I started writing it, and it took uh, about seven years, and then a few more years before it got published. Talk a little bit about that seven-year process. Were you working on it just when you had some spare time, when you could pull it out of the drawer and had, you know, an hour or two here and there to work on it? Talk a little bit about the process, what that was yeah. like for you. It was it was uh, definitely spare time. Uh, while I was working full-time, I'm an early riser, uh, always have been, and I would get up and write for an hour or two in the morning and then go to work, um, or at least some mornings I would do that. Um, and, you know, over a period of time, uh, the book started to build on itself. There were periods when I didn't do anything. There were periods when I was you know, more productive. Um, but it was not like a professional writer who sits down and, you know, Neil Simon says he sat down at eight in the morning and he wrote till five in the afternoon. And that's why he was Neil Simon. <laughs> <laughs> and then you retired and then you devoted more time to writing. Yeah, I did. I, I, well, I didn't, I didn't just go from working full time to nothing. I, I had a long period of part-time work, almost 10 years, where I where I worked part-time. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I was more productive with writing while I was doing that. Um, and then, so that project got finished, and then I had, I needed more pain and suffering, so I started this book. Um, and, but after, after we moved to Napa, my wife and I, which was, uh, uh, nine years ago now. Then I got involved with the newspaper mm -hmm. and uh, and started writing regularly with weekly deadlines and and that wasn't and that, enough for your writing fix. You, well, yeah. I was doing both then, but then then I was I really had the time to do it, hmm. so I was I was doing um, a weekly column and right. and then also working on this book, finishing this book. And this book, Fortnight on Maxwell Street, tell us a little bit about how the idea started to develop for you. Yeah. This book actually began as a memoir. Uh, I had uh, had the experience that that the hero in this book, um, whose name in, in the book is Nicholas, um, but as a senior medical student at Northwestern, I and every other senior medical student at Northwestern Went, went into the uh, inner city, into the near west side, and spent two weeks delivering babies in the slum tenements. And this was an extraordinary experience. We lived there, this was uh, like being uh, in, a, in a firehouse. We just lived there, we ate there. When our number came up, we slid down the obstetrical fire pole, we went out into these tenements, and we delivered babies generally on kitchen tables. Uh, what year was this? Well, th this was in 1968. Mm -hmm. And th this was extraordinary enough that I thought it could justify a memoir. And that's how I began writing this story. It began as nonfiction. Mm -hmm. 
Talk a little bit about Chicago in those areas in 1968. It wasn't exactly the safest neighborhood either. These were not safe neighborhoods. No. We were we were in jeopardy. We <laughs> we were at risk both because these were somewhat dangerous neighborhoods, but we were also at risk because we were doing things medically that we were barely capable of. You know, medical these were medical medical students independently or with student nurses. Uh, sometimes on our own, delivering babies. And what were some of the biggest problems that you faced doing that in terms of the community, in terms of the medical side? I mean, across the board, what were some of the obstacles that were in your way? Well, I, th- I think the, the biggest obstacle was what the, the issue of whether we were really well enough prepared to do that on our own. Only five years later, they stopped the program. And part of the reason they stopped the program was because the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology said that they wouldn't accredit the obstetrics residency mm-hmm. if this if this program continued. Uh, so it was it was uh, definitely the biggest obstacle was our own inexperience. Was the program though, with all of its flaws and with all the inexperience that you and your colleagues brought to bear? Was the program better than the alternative? If you hadn't been there, if, if these other doctors hadn't been there, what was the alternative, and would that have been more dangerous for these Well, there, there is some evidence for that. Uh, the alternative was principally Cook County Hospital, which was a hospital that was, you know, I referred to it in the book as the wild Midwest. Uh, it, was a, it was a hospital that did not have very good outcomes um, in terms of maternal and infant mortality and and complications, compared to the the main private hospitals and uni- uh-huh. university other university hospitals and and many of the patients and the people who live there were afraid to go there and actually preferred to get the services of the Chicago Maternity Center. They preferred it because why? They were afraid of Cook County Hospital. Many of them were afraid, and they felt that they would get better care from the, the medical students and residents and, and nurses and student nurses. Mm-hmm. And this was a primarily black population, I assume we're talking about. Lar- yeah, not exclusively, but but large majority were, were African Americans, um, many, many of whom at that time were first-generation People who would come up the Mississippi Delta from the American South, um, and there was a there was also a poor Appalachian population in Chicago mm-hmm. from places like Northern Kentucky, and there was there was also a Puerto Rican population, but it, this was largely an, a poor population. And talk about how this overlays Fortnite on Maxwell Street, which you changed at some point along the way from being a memoir to being a novel. Yeah. Well, the, the reason it changed was very practical. Um, I, I completed the memoir. I got a literary agent, and and it just didn't work as a story. Real life doesn't necessarily line up in a narrative arc that works as a story with a beginning and a middle and an it's end. Frustrated about that and, sometimes. You know, it just doesn't work that way. It was the book was episodic. It had some interesting episodes, but it didn't work as an intact story start to finish. And eventually my literary agent said, 
Um, actually, her words were, David, you need to start lying. And what she, she did not mean, I should write a phony memoir. What right. she meant was, why don't you use this extraordinary experience as a point of departure for a novel, for fiction? And, and I made that decision. Um, then I had to come up with story elements that successfully transformed it. And I, I was able to find one that really worked. And then the novel took off. And talk about that story element that, that is at the core of it, particularly yeah. the, the assassination of uh, Dr. King and right. how it fits into this story. Right. Well, that, that, was the, that was the premise that propelled the novel. Uh, the question, well, what if we had this extraordinary experience of delivering inexperienced kids delivering kids? What if that intersected the King assassination which resulted in inner city Chicago basically exploding in riots and fires. And, and as soon as that premise showed up, then the, then the, the book really took off. Uh, and uh, so that the, and I don't want to give away too much, okay. but, but if the, the collision of that obstetrical experience, that raw medical student experience, in that kind of a uh, explosive environment um, really made the story go. And talk about how you remembered that event. Well, I, that event is, is part of the fiction of the book. I wasn't doing the obstetrical rotation at the time that that happened. I actually had the Chicago Maternity Center experience about three months before the King assassination. When the King assassination occurred, I was safely in a nice suburban hospital. <laughs> so, okay, so so I didn't have the experience in the book. Um, but um, I did considerable historical research so that the description descriptions in the book of James Earl Ray stalking King and how the assassination happened are, are pretty sound historically. I spent a fair amount of time in Memphis mm -hmm. re doing research on that. So uh, the the events as described are historically sound, but I didn't personally experience them. My protagonist, Nick, experienced them. And talk a little bit about the, the violence that, that followed from that. Well, it was, yeah. I mean, Chicago really blew up. Right. The west side of Chicago, um, and I think... You have to be as old as us to, to remember this vividly. Uh, but there were um, uh, square miles of inner city Chicago streets that were basically out of control um, with violent rioting, uh, fires. Uh, there were deaths, lots of injuries. Uh, it, was, it was a very explosive, chaotic time. And even all the efforts to really diffuse it, uh, none of them worked for a while. There was a there was a delay, and then and then when there was a um, uh, law enforcement action, uh, it was it was pretty rough. Uh, but you know, things were just so out of control. It was a war zone, right? Ba basically. Mm -hmm. And talk a little bit about getting through the book and, and completing it and getting it out there, and, and a little bit of what you're engaged in now in yeah. terms of talking about it and, and launching it into the world. Yeah, well, I had um, I had a lot of people 
helped me along the way. Um, and I think that's true of a lot of writers. Uh, I've been in a writing, I've been in a writer's group, mm-hmm. a little little group with two other people, but for years, and we swap pages of the novels we're working on, and you get sort of lovingly critiqued along the way and get that kind of feedback. I, I took the book to several writers' workshops, the Napa Valley Writers' Workshop, a mm-hmm. uh, couple writers' workshops down at Esalen, and then a, a really unusual one uh, in rural Newfoundland. That's unusual. About two hours outside of St. John's, Newfoundland, there was a wonderful writers' conference. And less distractions there, I'm well, certain yeah. of that. And a terrific conference, and um, I met a, a workshop leader there uh, named Jessica Grant, who's quoted on the back cover of this novel. And she got really, really interested in this novel. I went back there twice, and she was, as I, I refer to her uh, in the acknowledgments, as my editorial angel. And she she really was very, very helpful to me in getting across the finish line. And what did that entail? What, what did you need to get it across the finish it, line? It, ent- it entailed... Um, uh, Fresh eyes and the manuscript, um, and uh, really good communication and good suggestions, uh, a combination of a lot of uh, affirmation of stuff that worked, and some just really sound suggestions of a few things that didn't work. Um, There was one chapter that literally needed to go somewhere else in the book, Uh, and um, there was one particular character that needed more refinement than others, and an experienced writer and teaching teacher of writing can can really be helpful uh, w- with with the sort of as I said, new eyes mm-hmm. on the manuscript, and she was invaluable. Mm-hmm. What's next? Well, right now um, I'm going to keep writing for the Napa Valley Register. Register, right? And I had an idea for a third novel. Uh, but I'm not sure if I'm going to go ahead and do it. It's set in, uh, the idea is set in Kauai. Uh, my wife and I love Kauai. We go to Hanalei on the north shore of Kauai every summer. And I have, and I like it so much, I thought, gee, it'd be fun to write about it. And I had an idea, which is not a doctor novel at all. Um, and it's an idea that includes... Um, the discovery of Elvis Presley alive on Kauai. Oh, that, that's how. <laughs> it's a little zany, and I have no idea if I'm going to write it. I wrote the first chapter. It's decent, but I don't know if I'm going to pull the trigger and well, go ahead. Well, you know, there's 12% of the population that thinks Elvis is still alive. That's sort of the baseline of loonies out there yeah, always. Well, that could be, that could be a, a waiting readership. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> David Kearns, his novel is Fortnight on Maxwell Street. And you have an event coming up on Sunday at Napa Bookmine. Tell us about that. That's right. Uh, Napa Bookmine uh, this Sunday, February 25th at 2 p.m. That's Bookmine on Pearl Street. Right. Uh, and I'm going to be talking, uh, reading, answering questions, and I'm going to be showing some historic photography as well. Great. Of, the, of stuff, of real old West Side Chicago stuff. David Kearns, I thank you so much for coming in. Okay, Jeff. Thank Thank you. you. Wine, food, talk. NapaBroadcasting.com.